and welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our beloved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. And The Green Majority is a platform for informed environmental dissent. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour. And after our environmental news today, Stefan is going to uh, speak with the Farmers Union. The National Farmers Union, Darren Qualman, uh, who is the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action, uh, about how the farming crisis is connected to the climate crisis. Excellent. So to begin, two rail blockades have gone up in Burnaby, B.C. over the past two weeks to protest the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, which is being built against intense opposition from activists and indigenous land defenders, and milder opposition from those who merely recognize the role it could have in the collapse of the biosphere and its potential economic uselessness. The Vancouver chapter of Extinction Rebellion organized the Burnaby blockade that happened on the 27th of November, after land defenders shut down a main intersection and clogged up the port of Vancouver a few days earlier. Ben Milger for CTV News quotes Musqueam land defender Aubrey Siegel as saying, quote, We need Canada to recognize they're not the boss here. They're not the leader. These are unceded lands. That is a legal reality. Unceded means it was never sold, it was never given away, and it was never vacant. Activists have also built a 25-meter-high treehouse along the pipeline's route and are quoted by Tessa Vikander for CTV Vancouver as saying that the treehouse is large enough to withstand a siege of months if necessary. Local residents and businesses impacted by the Six Nations road blockades near Caledonia, Ontario are suing the OPP and the Crown for their failure to properly negotiate the Six Nations fight to stop developers from encroaching on their land. Brett Forrester for APTN reports that the province ended up giving $20 million to people impacted by a similar Six Nations land reclamation in 2006. Lawyers for the Six Nations members are currently appealing a court injunction that has ordered them to leave. They've been living on the site for four and a half months now, and the federal government has yet to fulfill its promise of sending someone from Ottawa to speak with them. The Gwich'in First Nation, whose territories run between Alaska and the Yukon, are currently fighting for the integrity of the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge, whose lands Donald Trump is trying to sell off as quickly as possible before he is dragged out of office by his cemented toupee, in order to help a few people get rich off the 10 billion barrels of oil that is thought to be lingering beneath the pristine wilderness that is home to caribou, polar bears, and waterfowl. Henry Fountain points out for the New York Times that there might not be very much oil there after all, but the fact is not stopping the rushed auction of exploratory leases. Dana Tizia Tram, chief of the Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation in the Yukon, is quoted in the CBC as saying, quote, To this day, our children are born and are fed caribou broth and teeth on the bones, as our elders are fed choice parts from the caribou. So in every way, shape, and form, even our government and our way of life is informed by the porcupine caribou herd. The grotesquely flailing Trump administration is also rushing to exploit sacred lands in New Mexico and Arizona, and weaken safety laws put in place after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, possibly begin letting people off the hook for killing migratory birds, letting the Navy disturb endangered whales with war games, and cutting protections for the glorious and triumphantly aesthetic greater sage-grouse, which, aside from being the wackiest and most intensely excellent bird in North America, is actually quite important to the economies of a great many communities in the western U.S. because a healthy sage-grouse means a healthy sage-brush, which means healthy livestock and healthy big game. Speaking of big game, two Algonquin bands in Quebec are still trying to slow the sport hunting of moose in La Varennerie Wildlife Reserve because of dwindling numbers of moose uh, which indigenous people in the area need to consume to survive. 
Kelly Grieg points out for CTV Montreal, for instance, that the nearest grocery store to the Algonquin community at Barrier Lake is an hour and a half away. And so many people living there rely on the meat that is being jeopardized by recreational hunting. In Prince Edward Island, the CBC reports that a legislative motion to support Mi'kmaq rights to a moderate livelihood fishery was unanimously supported. Global News reports that the Sibignagadi First Nation has suspended its moderate livelihood fishery to make way for a group of endangered North Atlantic right whales migrating through the area off the southwest coast of Nova Scotia. Joan Baxter reminds us for the Halifax Examiner that these moderate livelihood fisheries will be operating under a standard of adequate community nutrition and economic well-being without jeopardizing the integrity, diversity, or productivity of our environment. Back in BC, the 26th of November marked one year since British Columbia took the lead in Canada by upholding the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as provincial law, but as Judith Lavoie points out for the Narwhal, the first ever title case heard in BC since the province enshrined UNDRIP is seeing the province argue that the new Hotlet nation gave up its rights to determine who gets to cut down trees on its territory because they abandoned the land that was in fact stolen from them. New Hotlet lawyer Jack Woodward is arguing that the province is trying to stall the case until the First Nation runs out of money and is forced to drop it. Down in Mexico, Mayan beekeeper Lydie Petch said of the Goldman Environmental Prize she was recently given, quote, the prize gives me the opportunity to tell the world that the lands of the indigenous peoples are being stripped away by the imposition of mega-extraction projects, agro-industry, tourism, and others that strengthen a model of capitalism that threatens natural resources and our way of life. New Zealand, meanwhile, has declared a climate emergency, while thousand-year-old trees on an Australian island are at risk of burning down, in a huge bushfire started by an illegal campfire during an historic heat wave, and a climate case filed by Friends of the Earth against Shell has begun in The Hague, arguing that Shell has committed human rights abuses by knowingly coaxing climate catastrophe and undermining a phase-out of fossil fuels in the Netherlands. In California and Oregon, indigenous members of four tribes, including the Yorick and Karak tribes, have won a decades-long battle to remove four dams on the Klamath River to help the salmon uh, and improve the flow of the river. In Alaska, the proposed huge copper and gold pebble mine has been denied a permit by the Army Corps of Engineers after being fought by local indigenous groups and environmentalists. And finally, probably the largest organized strike in history occurred last week in India, as farmers are continuing to protest the Modi-proposed deregulation of the market that they say will help corporations and hurt farmers. This comes as a Land Equality Initiative report is showing that farmland is increasingly falling into the hands of a shrinking number of operations, with 1% of farms controlling 70% of all the world's farmland. Starting with the end uh, of of that here, the deregulation that has passed that has now actually passed the Indian leg- legislature, and so it's just awaiting Modi's approval, which is all but guaranteed, should be a huge concern. You know, the the story itself of the fact that this is one of the largest social uh, strikes in history is an important sto- story from social movements perspective. But just but the the build they are protesting itself is massive. Uh, news and and really could impact uh, a lot of things. You know, this is because we, as we'll hear in the interview at the end of the show with Darren Qualman, the shift towards maximizing output is inherently detrimental to the soil and to the farmers. So, if this de- de- deregulation of agriculture, which makes up about fifteen percent of of uh, India's $2.9 trillion economy allows for larger private industry to buy up land and undercut prices, which, you know, given the history of capitalism ever, uh, it seems almost certain. The change will negatively impact the farmers in the region, as well as the health of the soil and the overall well-being of the climate. And so the fight for climate change and to take climate change seriously is directly connected, you know, with the fight against wealth inequality 
and privatization. And in this issue, they're basically one in the same. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, um, I think in terms of comments I have to make, I don't need to make much. Um, that was that was a really exhaustive sort of rundown of current issues. But I did just want to quickly take our listeners back to the the top um, story that that David had uh, been discussing, um, which is. Um, looking at those rail blockades that have gone up in Burnaby to protest uh, TMX or the, the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. Um, and I think uh, we're, this is a pipeline that people have been hearing about for so long and has been fought against for so long that I think we've sort of, at least I know from a movement standpoint, I think people have sort of started to take for granted the idea that, oh, it's never going to get built. There's so many delays. There's so much against it. It's never going to be built. But we have to remember that we have a government who has sunk at least $10 billion into this pipeline. The federal government and the government in, in Alberta and to a degree, the government in BC want to see this constructed. They want to see this pipeline expansion go through. And the only way that we're going to make sure that it never actually sees daylight is by engaging in and supporting um, actions like the ones being taken in Burnaby right now. I actually hadn't heard about these blockades that had gone up in Burnaby. And 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 it's not that like I am the be-all end-all of climate news, but it's like if somebody like me who is, who is really interested in these issues and really sort of tuned in hasn't heard about this... Um, Again, not that I'm the be-all, end-all, but but it does indicate that perhaps there's a little bit of issue fatigue around TMX. And I think it's going to take a bit of a concerted effort um, on on sort of the part of uh, folks who are involved in the climate movement in Canada to make sure that we're still very much paying attention to this issue, that we're caring about this issue, and that we're actively organizing and supporting it. Um, to combat the pipeline, because otherwise, like I said, we've got a government who has invested billions and billions of dollars into making sure this pipeline is built. And especially because we know Joe Biden, with the help of um, John Kerry, as we're going to talk about in the next story, they're not going to let um, Keystone be built in the States. So I think we're going to see the federal government really, really double down on TMX. Um, so we need to fight really hard because we know not only is this, is this a pipeline that's going to be really detrimental to coastal communities and coastal habitats and coastal wildlife, but it's also a pipeline we don't need. There simply is not the oil demand for it. So it's a waste of money. It's a waste of our assets. And yeah, we need to continue to organize against it. <laughs> if you people start harking back to last week's show, where we sort of talked about that fact that TMX and Keystone, even with the somewhat rosy opinion that we will still see Canadian oil increase until 2030, are are really unnecessary. And and these fights have been going on. You know, the tiny house warriors have been have been fighting against TMX all summer and, and well before that, and have been being harassed constantly by by settlers sort of fighting against them and and that has also failed to sort of you know break the social consciousness of this of this hellscape that is 2020 and so like my my only last point before we we move on is that like just how much is constantly going on in regards to land defenders is could be a whole show in and of itself easily Right. Like there could be three, four five shows uh, hours each week about the ongoing fight that exists, not just in North America, but across the world. Uh, and if we are ever able to, as Dave said, like there's there are what, six, seven mentions of different fights going on you know, between land defenders and the encroachment of colonialism, you know, in just that one introduction. And if we're going to limit warming to a manageable degree, it will be because of these people. I, I I truly think what if the version of us succeeding probably looks like we the, these land defenders successfully fight back consistently against these types of things and uh, to allow for the rest of the decarbonation technology to come up and then probably everyone's going to be like you know what was amazing the decarbonation technology and completely once again you know limit and ignore the amount of effort taken by these land defenders and so to me that. If you can support them in any way you can, please do, because they're happening everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to add really, really briefly, if you're listening to, actually, no matter when you're listening to the show, really, but if you're listening to it on the Friday, it comes out the Tuesday that precedes it, uh, Tuesday, December the 1st, was Giving Tuesday. And I know there are a lot of organizations who are vying for your for your dollars, especially this year when things are a little bit tight. Um, and I know a lot of them are very worthy environmental nonprofits. If you have money to spare this year and if you're planning on donating it and contributing it and you don't necessarily need that tax receipt, 
you should really consider it, consider uh, passing along those funds to indigenous land defenders um, across Turtle Island, across the world. Um, like Stefan had said, we, we've been talking about a lot of these ongoing battles that are happening, whether you're somebody who lives out east and you want to support the Mi'kma'ki or uh, support activists in Mi'kma'ki, if you're out west and you want to support indigenous land defenders who are who are combating TMX, um, or you are in, in sort of like what we refer to as Ontario, there's no matter where you are, there are indigenous land defenders who are protecting the land and, and by by extension, protecting you. Um, and they're a really, really worthy place to donate your money this year if, if, if Giving Tuesday or something like that is something that you would normally um, take part in and contribute to. Joe Biden's pick for uh, his international climate envoy position, Mr. John Kerry, is now being scrutinized publicly with Shannon Osaka pointing out for Grist that it is the first time anyone on the U.S. National Security Council will be one-pointedly focused on climate. And quoting the senior vice president of the Environmental Defense Fund as saying that it shows that climate will be central to the international policy of the Biden administration. Kerry has said that he will be partnering with young leaders of the climate movement, and he has earned the respect of AOC. Osaka argues that Kerry's position is especially important if the Republicans control the Senate, because then Biden will have to rely mostly on executive orders and international negotiation to save the biosphere from collapsing. Marianne Lavelle reminds us for ICN that Kerry was a senator for 28 years before becoming Obama's Secretary of State and negotiating the Paris Agreement five years ago. Michael Mann, the EDF, the Sierra Club and the Sunrise Movement are in support of Kerry, and Phil McKenna points out for ICN that Kerry was instrumental in finalizing the Kigali Amendment, which came into force in January 2019, phasing out HFCs and potentially cutting an additional half degree Celsius of warming by 2050. The executive director of Food and Water Action, Winona Hotter, has however said that Kerry has for a long time supported false solutions, like carbon trading, and Emily Atkin recently argued on MSNBC that anyone who cares about a decent future should constantly criticize Kerry and those appointed to take on the climate crisis at this late hour, writing, quote, He and the entire Biden administration need to feel the pressure of this moment more than they believe they can bear. We have a duty to future generations and ourselves to scrutinize his every move. Alan Freeman writes for iPolitics that Kerry will more than likely oversee the killing of the Keystone XL pipeline for a second time, as he did so five years ago, and uh, that it's an extremely easy and quick thing to do that the new administration to sh- and to show that the new administration is acting on climate. The province of Alberta under Jason Kenney has unfortunately already sunk $1.5 billion in the pipeline and has promised another $5.5 billion in loans towards the project that was revived by Trump with an executive order and then sped up with a second one. Chris Varco reminds us for the Cold Lake Sun that Kenney called the investment a solid bet that will produce a handsome return for Albertans. And a few weeks later, Biden promised to kill it once again. Pipeline hopefuls are thinking that maybe Biden's friendship with Trudeau, a desire to be nice to Canada, the prospect of ramping up our ridiculously ineffectual carbon pricing scheme, the promise of the oil sands industry to cut emissions, the promise of American union jobs, and the fact that it is already almost 10% completed, could maybe sway Biden to keep the project in exchange for greater Canadian climate action. But as Freeman points out, International oil companies have mostly fled the tar sands along with major international financial institutions. Canadian pipeline operations operators already have a bad reputation in the United States, and the U.S. already has a bunch of oil. Ilana Cohen writes for Inside Climate News that many activists are hoping Biden might kill the Dakota Access Pipeline too, which is currently in limbo thanks to the Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes. There's also the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline that is set to run from Alberta through indigenous territory in Minnesota while going under while going under over 200 streams which Biden could possibly do something about 
although it just received its final permit. And Cohen points out that when asked about these three pipelines, Biden's team only responded by saying that it would, it would kill Keystone XL. Line 3 construction in Minnesota has now begun, and a lawsuit from activists and indigenous groups has already been filed to halt it on the grounds that it exacerbates climate change and harms indigenous people. So quickly, and perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm going to heartily agree with Emily Atkin here, uh, who, by the way, runs an incredible newsletter called Heated, which I highly recommend. But in that activists and environmentalists, uh, our job is to keep those in power accountable. You know, the idea that you should allow those in power to be comfortable just because they do something, even if it's far from enough, is either to decide that one man's comfort is worth thousands of lives, or to admit that you believe the man to be so petty that he may turn his back on you if you try to hold them accountable. And to me, neither ultimately serves those who are most harmed, by, and nor those who are suffering already for the lack of an action. And so... Anything less than the highest standard for though for anyone claiming to be fighting for climate action, and this extends very easily to our current government, is a mistake. But to you, Lauren. Yeah, no, I'm in complete agreement there um, with with what you're saying and, and what Emily Atkins said. And it's definitely something that, that we can see mirrored in Canada. Um, we have a government right now who doesn't take criticism kindly because the liberal government likes to posit themselves as, as quite progressive. And in some issues, they 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 can be. Though um, I don't know, it just seems to me that, especially with I was reminded of this with um, with the accountability legislation that came out that has come out in the last couple of weeks. Um, the environmental community has been very vocal in saying this is good, a good step forward. Thank you for doing this, but we need you to do X, Y, Z to make it better, to make it stronger. We need to see these really specific amendments. And what we've seen in response from government is, is uh, a lot of bad attitude, a lot of hurt. They're really upset that anybody is critical of this legislation they have put forward. And to me, it's, I don't know, that seems to be in bad faith. If you are engaging in governance as a as a member of politics part of the sort of covenant that you are engaging in and entering is this idea that like yes your constituents will give you feedback on your behavior and will give you feedback on the legislation you put forward in support and you should accept that and you should welcome that kind of no matter the form that it comes in um so so yeah it's incredibly valid the point the point that emily makes that we always need to be willing and ready to critique and ask for more from our gov- from our, our governing body, sort of no matter the issue, but especially when it comes to climate change, because almost no matter what we get from a government, it will never be enough. Because when it comes to fighting climate change, it's it's just in magnitudes of like the number of people we can save. There's no on-off switch. We're never going to be able to be like, yep, we did it. We beat climate change. Everybody can go home for the day. We're always going to need to do better. We're always going to need to improve. So we're always going to need to ask for more. So I'm so, so sorry to Trudeau or in the case of this story, Biden and John Kerry, people are always going to be demanding more from you and you should welcome that and you should be thankful for it because it means that people are holding you to account and it means that people have faith in you. There was a period of time in Canada and, and in the States where people just didn't ask anything of, of Trump, of Stephen Harper, because we knew we weren't going to get anything. So really, if you're, I know politicians don't listen to this, but if they happen to be, and if your constituents are giving you a hard time and if they're saying, hey, thanks, but, or yes, and, be grateful for that because know that what that ultimately comes down to is that those people have faith in you as as somebody who they have elected, as somebody who they have entrusted their livelihood with, that like they have faith that you are going to act on what they need from you. Um, so it's an indication of a well-functioning governing system if this is the kind of dialogue that we are able to have with our leaders. An, an indication that you yeah, that, that you believe they might actually take action. You know, like the fact like the fact that Jonathan Wilkinson is out here getting retweets by Shell uh, for for the for their you know for their policies is an indication that they've at least got someone on board. But like when you're trying to make good policy, you need to accept feedback. Like it's to me, it is, I, I really am stuck by how much power is constantly asking to be coddled. 
How often power is like, but if you're mean to me, I might destroy the planet. And you're like, well, if that's your reaction, you don't deserve to be here. No, exactly. It's like you have to have a bit of a tough skin here. Um, but uh, but uh, to, to get back to the actual story at hand with Biden appointing Carrie, of course, Carrie, Carrie is not our eco-socialist hunk that is going to like step in and save the day. But it is a positive indication that Biden is aware of the fact that his main avenues for climate action are going to be through executive action and through the international stage. And Kerry is really well respected on the international stage. He's welcomed and appreciated at, uh, at things like COP at G7, at G20 summit. So he's a really good person to put in this position because he has the experience, he has the reputation. And, and he really does from, from, we can see from what um, sort of Sunrise and, uh, and AOC and folks who participated in that sort of joint panel uh, back when, when Bernie had initially dropped out that, that people do believe that he really does care about this issue and he really is passionate about engaging on it. So in terms of like who Biden could have appointed to this position, John Kerry really isn't a bad option. And ask to all of our listeners that as we come to the end of this weird year, we, we've decided one of our last shows this year, we wanted to make something more fun and we want to have an ask me anything. So if you have any questions for the three of us, myself, Dave, Lauren, shoot us an email at our contest up, contact us page, which can be found at greenmajority.ca or tweet at us, which is at Green Majority and ask us, you know, you can ask us about ourselves, about the show, uh, about any kind of environment question, about a question you might have more sci-fi question do you think we think that there's life on the moon all questions are valid uh so shoot them our way again you can find it at the contact us page at greenmajority.ca or tweet at us at green majority and we think it'll be a fun episode so help us out thanks so much we're here with an interview, uh, which I'm quite excited about, with Darren Qualman, who is the National Farmers Union, the director of the Climate Crisis Policy and Action. Welcome, Darren. Thank you, Stefan. Pleased to be here. So the, the first question is, uh, can you tell us more about the National Farmers Union, you know, when you started and what your mandate is? Yeah, the NFU was founded in 1969, so we're just over 50 years old. We have farmer members from coast to coast and uh, into the, the Northern Territories even. We represent all types of farms, all types of farmers. Uh, we believe, in terms of the membership structure, we believe that every member of the farm family contributes to farming. So when, some, when a farm becomes a, a member of the National Farmers Union, all the, the members of that farm family are members, the women, men, youth, uh, all members of that family. Uh, non-farm members, non-farmers can join as associate members. So uh, if your listeners would like to contribute to the work of uh, building a, a better, more sustainable food system, they should go to www.nfu.ca and uh, consider associate membership. And just in general to help listeners sort of locate us on sort of the, the spectrum, we're a progressive farm organization. We're dedicated to the preservation of the family farm. We speak out uh, in opposition to corporate power. We're opposed to genetically modified foods. And we support things that give farmers uh, power in a marketplace dominated by corporations, collective marketing agencies like the, the Canadian Wheat Board and, and Supply Management. And uh, the, the last thing I'll say on that, we, we've recently partnered with other groups to form the Farmers for Climate Solutions, FCS, and uh, Farmers for Climate Solutions is advancing a whole range of emission reduction and, and climate solutions uh, for farmers in Canada. Amazing. So we've discussed a fair amount on the show about the importance and ways in which agriculture could be, you know, it has to be actually a part of the solution towards climate, but never had we actually had someone with your expertise to be able to join us. And so I'm quite excited because in part, the, the National Farmers Union released a report last year, which I believe you wrote, uh, titled Tackling the Farm Crisis and the Climate Crisis, a Transformative Strategy for Canadian Farmers and Food Systems. And so before we get to the climate crisis, can you explain what is meant by the farming crisis? Yeah, the farm crisis manifests in, in many ways, and I'll just give you four or five of them. 
um, it really started in the mid 80s. Uh, if you were to look at a, a graph of net income, for instance, over the last 100 years, you'd see a dip in the Great Depression, 1930s, and then it, it bounced back to fairly robust levels all through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But in the mid 80s, net farm income in Canada really collapsed and in, in many years was zero or below. It's rebounded uh, after about 2006. It, it rebounded a bit, but now it, it seems to be trending back down towards zero again. So there really is a, a shortage of net income. Farmers have dealt with that in a number of ways, partly through off-farm income. Uh, one member of the family takes a job off the farm and, and tries to use that money to subsidize the farm and, and the family's needs. But this brings us to another measure of, of the farm crisis, and that is debt. That in another way people have, have dealt with that lack of net income is to, to borrow money and not repay it, such that in uh, each of the last 30 years, farmers' debt has increased, and now it's it's $115 billion. And to put that into perspective, uh, you know, more than half the countries in the world have less debt than Canadian farmers. So it's really a mountain of debt, $115 billion, billions of dollars every year uh, in interest. Subsidies, one of the ways that, that agriculture has been kept going in Canada is that taxpayers have transferred a lot of money to farmers to keep things going. If the corporations we deal with are choking off the flow of, of dollars to the farm, uh, one of the ways that we've dealt with that in Canada is by paying farmers uh, some additional money through subsidies. Uh, but that money is really added up now and we're over $100 billion in subsidies since the mid-80s. And then the other two things, just the loss of farmers. We've lost half the farmers in Canada since the 80s. And, and probably the most shocking metric of the farm crisis, we've lost two-thirds of the young farmers in Canada, farmers under 35. We've lost two-thirds of the young farmers in Canada just since the early 1990s. So if, if we don't reverse that, if we don't get those young men and women back onto the farm, we really risk Canadian agriculture going off a demographic cliff. Right. So... I have a question which I hadn't uh, prepared you for, and so if you uh, if you don't have an answer, no problem. But one of the major frustrations I've had whenever learning a little bit about the the farm bill in the United States is the way that subsidies end up propping up particular parts of agriculture. You know, like the, the amount of corn subsidies, for example, that that are pumped into the United States um, that basically make corn so cheap. Basically, you, you have to start making corn in, in, in a way, and then that becomes, that just floods the market with corn, and then that leads to all of the, the ways that corn derivatives have sort of swept over the market, rather than actually, you know, diversifying your crops. Out of curiosity, is that same dynamic seen here in Canada, or do we at least perhaps provide subsidies that are less destructive in that manner? Very similar. Um, in Canada, like the U.S., there's a real productivist mindset. So if the Canadian Department of Agriculture has a prime directive, it is maximize exports. And that means maximize production, maximize inputs, etc. So there really is a focus on producing a fairly limited number of, of export crops. And uh, often by large, large units, large production units. And a lot of that subsidy money goes to those large production units in order to maintain production of those crops, a lot of them for exports. So yeah, similar thing here in Canada. Cool. Well, thank you for, for indulging me. But to, to get back into this farming crisis and the series of ways that you've sort of identified where, where, where to bind, how do you see that that is tied with the climate crisis? In a couple of words, the tie is input use, farm inputs. And, and I often use this term and, and realize that non-farmers don't know quite what I'm speaking of. So I'll just tell you what I mean by that for a minute. Um, farm inputs means the, the things that farmers buy each year in order to make their crop. And a big chunk of that is purchased fertilizer, uh, millions of tons of nitrogen and phosphor fertilizer. Another big component is fuel. Uh, another one is chemicals, seeds, uh, machinery, interest on debt, etc. So, so the link between emissions and income is inputs. So I'll just circle back to that at the end, but I'll just tell you a little bit about, about that. When we ask the foundational questions about 
emissions from our farms, what we realize is something quite surprising. And that is agriculture doesn't produce greenhouse gas emissions. It's agricultural inputs that produce greenhouse gas emissions. And that becomes clear when you think about the long term. So if you think about 10,000 years, we, we've had agriculture on earth for about 10,000 years. Humans have practiced agriculture for about 10,000 years. And for 99% of the time, for 9,900 years, farmers farmed and they didn't change the composition of the atmosphere and they didn't change the climate. It's only in the last 100 years as farmers have become more and more dependent on purchased petro-industrial inputs that emissions have gone up and that, that farming has really become a significant source of agricultural emissions. And, and to put it very starkly, the emissions coming out of agriculture are a direct function of the inputs we're pushing in. And what this means is any low emission agricultural system, any low emission food system is going to have to be a low input food system. So things like um, organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture, um, by, um, agroecological practices, any of the ways that farmers can find to reduce inputs are almost certainly going to be ways that they will reduce emissions. And here's where it comes back to net income. Net income is low because farmers are paying so much of what they earn out for inputs you know, 95 cents out of every dollar that farmers take home from selling grains and, and uh, livestock, et cetera, 95 cents goes back out as uh, payment for inputs. So what we have in Canada is a situation, and, and I mentioned we're very productivist, we're very focused on maximizing production. As we maximize production, we maximized input use. We became over-dependent on purchased farm inputs. And when farmers utilize too many inputs when they become over dependent on inputs net incomes go down and emissions go up so if you turn that around if you use fewer inputs there's the opportunity for both emissions to go down and net incomes to go up and to really work towards solving both those crises simultaneously the farm income crisis and the climate crisis so maybe just for a second, we can dive a little deeper into what these sort of inputs are. Can you let us know, like, in my head, the most common one that I think of is, is the amount of, of CO2 emissions that go into creating uh, fertilizer. But I wonder if there's more. So what, what are the major sources of GH emissions within, this, within these inputs? It's a great question, Stefan. When most people think of greenhouse gas emissions, they think of CO2, carbon dioxide. And certainly farmers produce carbon dioxide when they run their tractors and trucks and uh, when they heat their homes, et cetera. But energy use and carbon dioxide is really only a small, a very small part of the emissions on our farms, and maybe 10 to 20%. Most of it is other gases, nitrous oxide and methane. And nitrous oxide is a huge part of, of Canadian agricultural emissions, maybe 30 to 40%. And that's largely a function of nitrogen fertilizer. And nitrogen really is the big story here uh, on our farms. Uh, nitrogen fertilizer is a real emissions problem, a real climate problem. As a matter of fact, it, nitrogen fertilizer is probably unique among all human products and processes in that it manages to be a major source of all three of the major greenhouse gases. Nitrogen fertilizer manages to be a big source of carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. So uh, carbon dioxide in the fertilizer factories where it's produced, nitrous oxide from the land when it's used, and methane from the natural gas feedstock that, that powers the whole uh, production process of nitrogen. And as some people will know, natural gas is, is largely methane, and a lot of that methane leaks out through the distribution system, it leaks out when natural gas is produced, uh, you know, venting and fracking, that sort of thing. And when we look at Canadian agricultural emissions, CO2 emissions are kind of flat or maybe declining a tiny bit. But the thing that's driving emissions upward is emissions from nitrogen fertilizer as farmers double and redouble the use of that fertilizer. So again, we get back to this productivist approach we want to produce ever more each year. That means we have to use ever more 
inputs, and that means ever larger tonnage of nitrogen fertilizer, and that's that's the real driver for the emissions from agriculture. So that's a very clear, I think, outline of of the problem that we sort of face. And from your answers, I can sort of guess at least some of the solutions that you might you might be looking into. Uh, but but what does, in your opinion, what does taking action on climate within the farming community look like? And and then a secondary question, what kind of impact could it have? I'll start, I'll start with the second question. In terms of the impact, I, I think the impact could be quite large. Um, in Canada, agricultural emissions are about 12%, which may not sound like a lot, but you know most of the other sectors are 10, 20% as well. So when you sort of come down to sector by sector, agricultural emissions are, are very significant. Uh, the other thing is agricultural emissions are going up. That makes them a peculiar problem in a country where the commitment is to reduce emissions by 30% by 2030 and then get to net zero by 2050. So clearly, if, if you think you're going to reduce by 30% and then get to net zero, uh, if you have a sector that the emissions are going up, you, you have to take a special look there and, and, and support that sector in, in moving those emissions down. So. Uh, and Farmers for Climate Solutions and the NFU are really focused on, on farmers taking the lead in advancing solutions, so we maintain control of that. In terms of how we get there, again, uh, you know, just taking a long view, far, for the majority of time that farmers have farmed, agriculture has been solar powered and zero net emission. So we, th this can clearly be done. A very, very low input agriculture has been carried on on earth for 99 centuries. And we're not going back to farming with horses or hoes, but uh, we also can, can look to those other kinds of agriculture and those zero emissions and, and you know, try and figure out how we can replicate some of those things. So CO2 from tractors and uh, trucks, for instance, some of the zero emission vehicles, the, the electric cars we're seeing, some of that can be brought into agriculture. We can have uh, electric light trucks. For large farm equipment, uh, we might be looking at battery electric tractors. For the big equipment, we might have to look at hydrogen. Hydrogen is much more speculative and perhaps problematic, but um, both the trucking industry and the agricultural industry have to figure out how to move high horsepower, big machinery for many, many hours a day. On nitrogen, we, we need to stop doubling and redoubling the use of it as we are in Canada, and we have to find ways to use it more efficiently. This is a very, very high emission energy intensive product, and we have to treat it with much more respect and, and find ways to use it as absolutely efficiently as we can and use less of it. Um, so that means rediscovering some of those ways we used to farm and, and, and also taking a page out of the book, maybe from organic farmers and others who have found ways to get the fertility they need from biology rather than industry. And that's really key. You know, we had 99 centuries of farmers getting what they needed from biology. And we've had one century of farmers getting what they need from industry. And that last century has been the high emission century. So clearly anything that moves us from an industrial to a biological foundation is, is the direction we have to go. So things like cover crops, more biodiverse landscapes, uh, coming to a better understanding of soil and building soil and, and getting the fertility from soil and really, uh, you know, the, those high carbon, high organic matter soils, they, they hold water better. They're just so much better for, for crop production. So that's really a, a big part of it. That's one of the ways we can reduce nitrogen use. Uh, on the livestock side, we need to deal with manure as well as we can because manure can be a source of nitrous oxide and methane. And, um, you know, grazing animals, we need to, because they can be a, a major source of emissions, uh, but that's partly a natural thing. You know, grasslands have always had grazers on them and those grazers have always emitted methane. Not to minimize that problem, we have to deal with that as well. But the best thing, probably the best way to think about it is we want to take all the many benefits that those grazing animals produce, like healthy biodiverse grasslands and soil building and soil carbon sequestration. We want to maximize those benefits while managing and minimizing as much as we can uh, the emissions, the methane emissions, so that those methane emissions are no higher than they need to be 
but if, on the other side, uh, we've got animals on the landscape really making sure that those grassland ecosystems are as healthy and diverse and, and widespread as possible. So that's, that's, that's kind of a, the, the three big pieces are, are livestock, nitrogen, and on-farm fuel use. And that's a, a bit of a tour of how you deal with all three. Thank you so much. So I have one other added in question, which again, if, if, there's, if it's not a clear answer, please feel free to skip, which is something I've begun to get interested in in these conversations is sort of what success looks like. Like if you could go out and, and reshape Canada's farming industry, or if, if it's more interesting or more useful in your mind to discuss what kind of policies that could be in, put in place uh, to encourage this this future, like what does a future of that 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 what is a future where we are addressing both of these look like? You know, are we splitting up large farms into smaller smaller groups? Are we providing more supports for other for new farmers to find ways in into the practice? Are we you know are we have we have we gotten rid of this productionist model and sort of switched into more of a making sure that we are you know, absorbing as much carbon as possible. What are the types of things we could be doing and, and what does the future look like where we've taken this as seriously as we obviously need to? That's a really key question. You know, where, where do we need to go to? And, uh, and I'll, I'll give kind of two answers. Um, when a lot of people think about a, a low emission food system, they think about sort of local food and quite small scale production. And, and that's really key, really important. And that's going to be the first part of my answer. But the second part of my answer is going to be focused on just the, the vast amount of farmland we have in Canada, 160 million acres. And how do we farm all of that land? A lot of it, which cannot really serve the local food system, isn't close to a city, et cetera. So uh, kind of my two-part answer. First of all, if, if we closed our eyes and imagined a, a, a near zero emission food system, we could imagine a city, whatever city your listeners live close to, you could imagine that city buying up land that comes up for sale in say a 40 kilometer radius around the city, and then giving that land over to young farmers, new farmers, organic farmers, anyone who wants to make food on that land in ways that are sustainable and low emission. The, the city or someone else might uh, then start a uh, a pickup service, maybe using battery electric trucks charged from low emission electricity that could go through the countryside and pick up that food. And it could bring that food back to farmers markets, food hubs, local neighborhood distribution systems where people could walk and bike and take transit. Um, the tractors on those local farms might be battery electric. You know, people might be finding ways to, to till the soil without emissions. They might be using organic methods rather than fertilizer. And I think when you picture that system, you, what you've pictured is a, a food shed, a, a local food system that has almost no emissions. You know, there's, there's no, not really any fertilizer emissions. The tractors might be battery electric, the, the trucks bringing it to the city aren't emitting, people are walking and biking to get the food, et cetera. It's in their neighborhood, it's, it's local, it's accessible. So that, that's one vision of a, of a low emission food system that I think we could move toward. Uh, but on a larger scale too, Canada is blessed with 160 million acres of farmland, about 100 million acres of cropland, and we need to find ways to move all farmers of, of all sizes and all production styles to ever lower emission production systems. So uh, one thing that we've proposed is a hybrid system where non-organic and organic farmers come together and, and swap ideas. And, and we bring all the best ideas from organic agriculture, things like finding ways to get fertility from the soil and biology rather than from industry. And we transplant those into non-organic because it's always going to be the case in Canada that the majority of farmers will be non-organic just because of the way those markets are structured. So we need to, we need to get curious about organic agriculture, agroecological practices, regenerative, holistic, uh, biodynamic, permaculture, all of those things. And we need to transplant as many of those ideas as we can into large acre agriculture. And instead of doubling and redoubling fertilizer use, for instance, cut that fertilizer use in half, which, which sounds radical, but it really only takes us back to the levels we were at, you know, maybe 15 years ago. So it's, it's not, uh, it's not going back to nothing there. So I, I hope that that answered your question. You know, there's, there's different approaches based on different scales and where we are in the country, but there's really promising things everywhere. 
Oh, for sure. I honestly, it would be unfair of me to expect you to be able to explain or to get into a fulsome way to overhaul a billion dollar industry in a, in a few minutes. But that was that was very helpful. Thank you. And so the, the last question I have is, is really how folks can get involved and support the work. You know, it, to me, it seems quite clear the NFU is doing some very important work across Canada and especially within agriculture. And so, you know, I guess both both if the, if we have farmers listening, which we may, you know, we are broadcast from Barrie to Buffalo, so there's a possibility someone might be on a farm listening to this. But also, if there's any ways that non-farmers can support the work as well. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I'd give three or four ways. First, uh, you know, if you want to learn more about this, um, the report by the NFU uh, tackling the farm crisis and the climate crisis is quite readable quite uh, a lot of non-farmers have read it and really commented positively because it really gives a a look at, at how farming is done the economics the environmental impacts so there's that farmers for climate solutions a great coalition they have uh information on their website uh, farmersforclimatesolutions.ca uh, another thing that people can do is, is join the farmers union Both, you know farmers can join as farm family members and non-farmers who support a move toward a more sustainable low emission more nutritious delicious sustainable food system can join as associate members uh, the other thing that people can do is is get to know local farmers if you have a uh, a connection to a farm or if you have a farmer's market or some way get to know local farmers connect with them and 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 source some of your food or more of your food or all of your food locally if you can. And then the last thing I think is just something that all Canadians can do for all sectors all the time is just push for climate action generally, uh, both agriculture and in every way. The federal government, I think, is uh, reconsidering its 2030 climate targets and, and trying to come up with something more ambitious. And we really need to push to make sure those targets are ambitious because the current level of ambition in Canada and around the world doesn't take us to 1.5 or 2 degrees. We're on track for 3.2 degrees globally. And that's way, way, way below, beyond the, the danger zone. So we need to push for, for better, more ambitious climate action generally. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I, I feel like I now want to go to you whenever I have a question about agriculture. So I expect more calls from me, Darren. Uh, this has been Darren Qualman of the National Farmers Union, Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action. And I guess I'll leave with one very final question, which is if people want to keep up with your work or follow you online, is there any way can do that in, in any way they can do that? Yeah, if they go to www.nfu.ca, there's a climate tab there. So just go to nfu.ca and click on climate and you'll see our latest uh, work and you can get a copy of the Tackling the Farm Crisis and Climate Crisis there. Amazing. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Stefan. Really appreciate the time.